If you would uh, open up to session three in your notes and in your Bibles, Mark chapter 10. Y'all get unleashed when the lights come on, don't you? That's good. Keep you active and awake. All right. Last night, one of the uh, questions pertained to season five of American Idol. And uh, in the vein of shows that I I thought, at least by now, were were bygones, what I didn't realize is another season of The Biggest Loser is is going to be airing in January. I didn't I didn't realize this show uh, was still in existence. Uh, but you know it was popular. I don't know five six years ago is when Biggest Loser was was pretty big uh, as a show. And the the concept is you know it's a weight loss uh, reality TV you know contestant format. Um, and every you know every week they'd have the contestants weigh in, you know, they, they had a, an initial weigh in and then they go through some exercise program. They, they have, you know, a personal fitness coach working with them, shouting at them in the face, encouraging them on in moments when they're wanting to give up, pushing through the pain, right? Those of you who uh, do exercise or weightlifting, you, you know what that's like, you know, what it's like to kind of push to the next level, keep going. Um, and so you get to observe these, these lives unfold throughout the course of a season of this show. And, and not just watching people lose pounds, but the, the emotion that goes with that, all the, the hope that they've attached to this and their desire for a new life, a different kind of life, a different way of, of relating to food and to fitness. Um, but the way that you would win the show is by losing. Right? That's why it's called The Biggest Loser, because they're, they're tracking with, you know, by percentage, who can lose the most in terms of their, of their body weight here. The more of yourself that you lose, the more that you win. And that's a bit of our theme for this weekend, in particular for tonight's session. It's titled Becoming Small, and doesn't have anything to do with your, your physical size or weight here. But look at this thought from Rankin Wilborn. He asked the question, what if contentment comes by way of subtraction and not addition? Right, so much of life, we think in terms of what can I add? What can I gain? What can I possess? What's going to show up under the Christmas tree? What's going to come my way this year, what, what new adventure awaits me that I haven't gotten to experience before? And that's where we think contentment lies. It's in something outside of me that I don't yet have that I need to get my hands on. And, and the way of Jesus, like he does in every other category, he just blows through our expectations and flips upside down the way that we tend to see life. But, you know, this thought of losing ourselves 
Here's another way that this runs against the current of the culture that we live in. Because aren't you just supposed to accept yourself the way that you are? You know, don't listen to the haters. Stare at yourself in the, in the mirror. Tell yourself that you're beautiful no matter what they say. You know, no adjustment required. And, and there's something that's helpful about that mindset. I mean, especially, you know, as you, as you navigate a world of image comparison and, and you know, the, the kind of mental management of what do people think about me and how do I look and how do I line up with others. And so I, I get the heart of that message and what it's trying to accomplish of, you know, you, you, you need to worry about who you are and who God has created you to be and not always trying to figure out how you line up with others. But we're, we're, we hear again and again the thought that there, there shouldn't be any sort of people or voices in my life telling me that I need to adjust at all, telling me that I need to change, telling me that there might be something wrong with me that needs to go away. And as Jesus makes stops along the road here, he's going to force people to confront themselves, to see what's inside of them. And to, to lose some aspects of who they are. This is, this is difficult for us because uh, we like ourselves a lot. You know, so much so that we actually have uh, toasters that will put a selfie image on your morning breakfast right there. I don't know if anybody any of y'all got that for Christmas. Uh, but this is called the selfie toaster, you know. Stick your face Everywhere, of course, who wouldn't want to eat uh, bread that has your face on it, along with the Pope and Mother Teresa and whoever else happens to uh, show up on, on toast. But, but there is this, this thought in the Gospels, and, and you see it in other places in culture, right? So Re- Rebecca and I went and finished out our Star Wars experience uh, th- th- this, this December and, and saw Episode 9 uh, together. Uh, it was all right, you know, uh, it, not, not a satisfying ending, but it was okay for what it, for what it was trying to do. Uh, a lot of the, the final trilogies, just repeating themes that you, you see in the, uh, the first three movies uh, that came out. But, but one that surfaced again is this thought of seeing what's within and coming face to face with that. Right? Luke has to do that. Yoda leads him down this dark passageway. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Darth Vader shows up and he's in a lightsaber battle with him and he attacks him. And then the mask comes off and it's Luke Skywalker's face himself. Because there's a little bit of the dark side in him as well that he has to, to deal with. And Ray has her own moment of having to do that as well. I won't give away any spoilers for that. But there's something... No, I did not. No, no, nobody, nobody has spoiled the film as much as Judah Vogel has for me when it came to the entire Avengers series. So, um, but I, I'll let that go. Uh, there are things that we need to let go that are inside of us. And, and Jesus kind of helps us hold a funeral. So I don't know if you're ready for that. You know, I don't have a trumpet player to, to play taps you, you, some of you guys barefoot, you're not dressed for a funeral, sorry. Uh, but, but we're going to hold the funeral tonight because there are things that he's going to lead us to allow them to die. So let, let's read together Mark chapter 10, verse 13. 
first thing he leads us is to let our self-importance die. And they were bringing children to him that he might lay his hands on them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Right. We get a little bit more insight into the disciples here because they overstepped their bounds in this moment. They don't wait for any direction from Jesus. They don't ask him how he would like to handle this situation. They just presume to take charge and drive away the toddlers that are, that are showing up, being brought uh, by their parents in order for Jesus to pronounce a blessing over their lives. They, they assume that they know how this situation needs to be handled. And the one who is coming into town to be declared king over Jerusalem, he doesn't have time for babies. Right? He is too important to be bothered with your kids and their grubby fingers and their boogers and their mess and all that, right? right? That's what they assume. You know, Jesus does not have time for this. Sorry, that'd be nice. We didn't approve this moment. You know, maybe later we can get the press to come and he can shake hands and kiss babies on to his next campaign. Uh, but they're not having this. But Jesus, Jesus will not have their attitude and their approach. Because he is the humble Savior. That this is why he has come. This is the whole point of the incarnation. He entered into our frailty. He entered into our weakness. He became small. He became a baby. He lived as a child. He lived every phase of life for us. He was a preteen. He was a teenager. He knew what it was like to be in his young 20s. And he did it. Because he came near to us to rescue us in the needy condition that we bring to every phase of life. And Jesus wants to bring his blessing to these children. But he also wants to free his disciples of their self-importance. William Lane says, The disciples attempt to turn the children aside because they were unimportant, is one more instance of a persistent tendency to think in wholly human fallen categories. Right, maybe, maybe this isn't the category for you. I was talking with uh, Beth and Amelie earlier, and, and apparently uh, Beth is the, the baby whisperer and Amelie is the toddler whisperer. So those are their, their skills. But you, you guys, you know, for the most part, we probably don't have to make a convincing case how you should be nice to little kids. A lot of you serve in LCC Kids, and if you don't, sign up. Bell and Pell's in the back of the room. Uh, or CCC Kids, wherever you are, right? Um, but there might be a category of people that you just don't tend to approach. That you've grown comfortable kind of just ignoring them. You're not going to throw stuff at them. You're okay with them sitting in the same room right now. But you kind of walk past them and they, they don't get much interaction from you. You're not trying to enter in their world, take interest in their lives, the kinds of stuff that they're into. 
Maybe that feels beneath you because it, it's not the stuff that you're interested in. It's not the kinds of stuff that you, you think is cool. And so you're not going to you know, outwardly make fun of them, but, but you're not going to go out of your way to see that they're a part of the experience because honestly, they kind of suck the cool out of the room just a little bit. It's like you and your squad and y'all are fine and, and you, you're, you have inside jokes that you all get and you have the same kinds of interest and then you, you, you put one or two other people in the picture and it's like, okay, can we crop them out of the photo? I'm not so sure I'm going to take them with me on the road trip that I'm heading on. Is that, is that how you approach people? Are there, are there people that you honestly feel like you are above? And you're not quite certain you want to be seen with them. You can do that at school. You can do that in the youth group. There's this, this subtle, maybe not overt, maybe not they're being driven away in the way that the disciples are approaching this. But they get the message. You don't have time or concern or could give a care about the things that are important and significant in their lives because honestly relating to them takes too much work and you shouldn't have to give that kind of work to figure them out we can have the same kind of attitude in our hearts of self-importance we can do it in in religious categories and related to the worship of God right the disciples thought they were doing Jesus a favor here they had good intentions, right? They, they wanted to protect the time of their Lord. They, they wanted to do him a service. And, and so they, they, they thought they were doing the right thing. And we can have, maybe, maybe some of you who are older or some of you who are further along in your, in your walk with the Lord. Maybe sometimes settings like this are a bit of a struggle for you. Because you're leaning in and you want to hear something from God and you want to receive something. You want to engage in worship. You want to lift your hands. You want to be expressive. And, and you're aware that not everybody is in that place. And yet they're at the same retreat as you. And you can kind of feel like, you know, they're not really here for the right reasons. They're not really serious about the things of God. And you wouldn't put it in these words, but there could be a little bit of, you know, Jesus doesn't really have time to deal with where they're at right now. Look down on others from our own sense of being above them. Here's the encouragement that Jesus brings to his followers, and, and really it's something that comes to all of us. Verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Every phase of life that I've been in, I've typically, it's starting to catch up to me now that I'm in my 30s. But, but most of life, it's like, I just was ready for the next season to come. The next level of responsibility. The, 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 the next you know, bit of freedom that would come my way. Of being entrusted. Of being able to handle something. And so, you know, it's like I, I was 
in children's church and I wanted to get out of that. And I was in the youth group and I wanted to be able to kind of move on to the next thing. And I, wa- I was in my 20s and I wanted to move into the next phase of, of life. And, and with this posture that that's, that's there for me to handle. And maybe you don't have that same kind of mindset. But it's likely that there, there's a bit more freedom that you wish that you had. There's a, there's a bit of convincing that you try to do with your parents about how you really can handle the things that they think you're not ready for. Right? There's a, there's a new setting you want to go to. There's friendships you want to be a part of. There's, a, there's an experience you want to have. And, and they have a hesitation. And they're not quite so sure that that would be good for you. They don't think you're ready. And you, and you make your best case and your best argument as to, no, I've, I've, I've really got this. I'm fine. Everything will be okay. We, we love to think that we can handle life just fine. And so we don't ever want to move back in time to this childlike dependence and awareness that, no, don't, don't let them play with the matches, right? Don't, don't put, the, the sharp knives need to be up high. You don't get to reach for those. You can't handle those. And Jesus is saying, there's something when it comes to entering the kingdom, that is essential for you to surrender that and to admit, I can't handle this. I don't bring anything to the table. I don't have any intrinsic capacities that make me right with God or make me deserving of entering into His kingdom. That's... There's an aspect of that that we are anxious to make sure people don't realize about us. You know, what if, what if somebody really knew that I'm not quite all put together? Because I've kind of got them convinced. I've got them, you know, what, again, whatever your specialization is, if, if that's on, on the court or on the field or in the classroom or you know, in, in settings of church and serving. And, and it looks like you're kind of put together and you can handle that well. And you don't want them to have insight into what's really going on inside of you, how much you really do feel, as we talked about this morning, frail and weak. Jesus says, to receive the kingdom means you have to, you have to be like a child. Right? Children, it's not given to them to manage the household, to take control, to have everything figured out. They, they are utterly dependent on their parents to know, okay, how's the next meal coming? How's the next bill getting paid? But what children do specialize in is receiving gifts. Right? They, they, my, my kids, not only are, are they specialists in opening their presents, they'll open each other's presents. They'll try to open their cousin's presents. Right? They love opening up gifts. And that's the mode that Christ's kingdom has come. And that's the second scene that Jesus brings us to is the necessity of coming with empty hands to receive the kingdom as a gift. So he says, let your self-improvement die. You know, there, there's the theme that comes up every January, this concept of new year, new you. 
You know, what, what do you want to change about yourself? What's something that you're going to put in place that's uh, going to be a better habit or routine that you can grab and go? You know, what, what, what uh, aspect of how you spent your time in 2019 do you want to shift here? It's like just the, 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 the new year is full of a sense of possibility. And, and you know, I appreciate that God hasn't just made every day a Monday, you know, that Garfield's going to complain about. It's just Monday and then Monday and then Monday. And oh, what's tomorrow going to be? Oh, it's going to be another Monday, you know. It's like there, there, there's, there's seven days in a week. There's 12 months in a year. We mark time. We get to the, these transition of seasons. And, and there's a sense that new mercy can come my way. But we live in a culture that trains us that you know, we've got the ability to fix whatever's broken in our lives. To change ourselves and to get done what needs to happen. You might not be familiar with the actress Carol Burnett. She's been in television for seven decades. Mike, you know Carol Burnett? If anybody would know, I, I, I was convinced Michael Lorio would... He, your fan, your fan right here. Uh, we have been influenced by this mindset that floods the entertainment industry. She, write, she said this, only I can change my life. No one can do it for me. Now that probably sounds so common, you might be wondering, well, what's the problem with that? But if we could change our lives, then Jesus should have stopped on that road to Jerusalem and never been crucified. And there's a man that he confronts here that needs to realize this. Look in verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey or on his road, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right, the, the man here, he's called elsewhere in, in the Gospel's accounts of this story, the rich young ruler. And he's got everything that this world admires. Right? He's got wealth. He has youth and vitality. He's got popularity. People look up to him. He has power and influence and authority. He's, he's kind of like if you know, a young... Donald Trump or Kylie Jenner actually had morals. You know, if you add the morality piece in there, then you got the full picture of just the ability to take charge over life. And he sees the kingdom of heaven as one more thing that he can acquire with his power and with his influence and with his intrinsic nature. Something that he can handle. And he asks Jesus in verse 17... Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, why did Jesus challenge him about that? So Jesus is implying, you know, why are you saying that? Because only God is good and I'm not God. So you, it's inappropriate for you to call me that. By the way, that's how you know, Muslims will read that verse. And that's the conclusion that they'll draw. Jesus was claiming divine status left and right in the Gospel of Mark leading up to this moment. That's obviously not what he means here. 
He's asking this man, how are you using that word? Because I bet you think you're pretty good. And, and do you think like we're in the same class? And so you come to me and it's like, I'm good teacher, good like you're good. And you've got what I've got. Don't you realize that goodness is not something that's humanly attainable? It belongs to God and God alone and only God can give it. So he's pushing back on this young man. He's, he's pressing on the, the tensions of the categories that he uses. Because he wants to look good while Jesus looks good. But he asks this question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And that's a weird question. Because he, he takes this concept of an inheritance, which is not based in what you do, but, but based in who's your father, right? Who are your parents? Who's given you this inheritance? Who's written you into their will? And he, and he puts it in the category of performance. And achievement. Hey, what's the next thing that I have to accomplish in order to enter the kingdom, in order to inherit eternal life? He, he thinks of this as clout that he can earn, just another category that he can be awesome in. And so Jesus says, verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Hey Luke, in the uh, Bible trivia, steal the bacon that happened today. Did the Ten Commandments show up in any of those numbers? No, we did days of creation. No Ten Commandments. All right. So he, he says to this man, you know the commandments. My question to you is, do you know the, do you know the Ten Commandments? All right, let's think about this for a minute here. Uh, did Jesus list all Ten Commandments? No, right? Uh, you can do that by counting them and realize that he, he didn't. Uh, give me some commandments that Jesus left off when he said, you know the commandments. No, I think he said that, right? Do not murder, right? So that's what he did say. Yeah. Right? No other gods before me. Yeah. But we're talking about the Ten Commandments, Micah. Yes. Yes. Right? What else? Yep. Do not covet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right? So, we, we got most of them there. Um, no graven images is number two. So, Jesus mentions commandments five through nine. He leaves off one through four. Right? You shall have... Know the gods before me. Do not make any graven images to worship them. Uh, you shall keep the name of the Lord your God, not take it in vain, honor it as holy, honor the Sabbath. And number 10, you shall not covet. Right, I'd love to, if, if you get bored with the Bible or get bored with Jesus, read the Gospels and slow down and pay attention with the ways that he interacts with people. Because he's, he, he's the smartest man who has ever lived. And he always knew exactly what they needed. And he set a trap for them. But it's a trap of love. 
It's a trap to pull them in. And he set a trap for this man. Because he doesn't say anything about having other gods or coveting. He, he throws them a softball. And so he responds, I was hoping you would say that. I've done all of those things. You know, there are pictures on my parents' fridge of me keeping commandments numbers five through nine. I have been the best church kid you could ever know. I've done them since I was little. Right? Here's an insight from the Bible. Pride is not just about the bad things that you do. It's also about how you see the good that you do. And this man's trust is in himself. There's a very interesting scene in the book, The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And uh, Pilgrim's Progress is it's, it's an allegory of the Christian life. And, and the, the main character, his name is Christian. Kind of, a little spoiler alert there. It tells you right away who he is. Uh, he is heading down a road. He's, he's been sent to go through a narrow gate and go down a narrow road. And he interacts with various characters along the way, some who help him, some who pull him off the path. And at one point, he comes across somebody named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Right? So this, one, this is a guy who's smart in the ways of the world. He's, he's the life hacker of the 17th century when Bunyan wrote this, right? Uh, and, and he's here to help out Christian because he's warning him, you know, the road that you're on is filled with danger and pitfalls and struggle. And this is not an easy road, man. And if you want help, because I notice you've got a big burden that you're carrying on your back, I can tell you what you need to do. You need to head up that mountain over there, that hill called morality and go to Mr. Legality's house and he'll take care of that burden. And so what gets Christian off of the road that we, he was heading on was to, to head up this hill of morality. And as he does so, the burden on his back gets heavier and heavier and heavier. This is what is very insightful from that because you can get off of the road by heading into bad things, you can also get off of the road by heading into good things for the wrong reason. Dane Ortland says, scrupulous obedience is more often than we are aware, thinly veiled disobedience. Obedience, therefore, can be damning. Keeping the rules no more extinguishes the sin in our hearts than buckets of petrol extinguish the flames in our fireplace. Right? And so, you could be a rule follower or a rule breaker and there not be any affection for God in your heart. Because either way, the basis of your relationship with God is in what you can and can't do. And, and you're focused on that, and that's how you see him. And so, you know, based on your personality, based on your instincts, something inside of you wants to run as far away from that as you can. From anything that feels constricting, like it's limiting your feed freedom, that anybody's going to tell you what you're not allowed to do. And that's how you see God, and that's how you see he's just 
he's just there to oppress your happiness? Or there's a sense of safety in that. And if I just check the right boxes, and if I'm just on my best behavior, then God will bless me, and I'll be able to look down my nose at everybody else who's breaking the rules. And that's where I get my sense of righteous status and being acceptable before Him. But it doesn't mean that there's a heart for God. And often that comes with its, its own contingency. Like, God, I'll, I promise I'll obey you this year if you just let me do this. If you just convince my parents to let me do this. If you get me a place on the team. If you just get that guy to notice me. God, I promise I'm going to read my Bible. And, and you enter into this tit-for-tat relationship with God. And when he doesn't deliver those things, you're no longer a rule follower. And you exit the road by another way. And you just do whatever you want. That's what this man is in danger of doing. But Jesus loves him. And he loves you and me. Look what it says, verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. All right, second moment in this passage where we have math that doesn't add up. Because Jesus says, you lack one thing. But he gives them three things to do. Right? Go sell everything that you'll have. Right? Go give everything that you have to the poor. Come and follow me. What's happening here? Here's what Jesus discerns about this man. And why he's left off commandments about having other gods and not coveting. Because his functional God, his functional trust, his sense of purpose and identity is found in the self-made life that he has. His wealth, his status, the respect that people give him. In fact, in the culture that Jesus lived in, they assumed that if you had money is because you know you, you must have lived a really good life and God's blessed you, which is why, you know, when Job suffers so much, his friends come to him and say, "Job, what what happened, man?" What'd you do, Job? You must have done something wrong, and that's why you have so much trouble that's coming to your life all of a sudden. And that's what this man would risk losing. People notice you when you're a good person who has good things. But that's all of his hope and identity is in that. He, that he's, his hands are clinging tightly to this. And so Jesus says, you've got to let that go. You've got to let that die. You've got to let living according to what you think you can acquire with your good deeds or your power of purchase out of your hands. Sell everything you have. And, and the poor are going to get blessed. It's going to fall out of your hands onto them. And they'll have that. You'll have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. 
What's the one thing that the man who had everything lacked? It was Jesus. Which means he lacked everything. Your hands are in, when your hands are empty, you get me. You can have me, but it means you've got to let go of any alternative savior. Whether that's you or your stuff or the life you've been trying to build for yourself. How does he respond? Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He comes away from an engagement with Jesus, disappointed, wanting his money back. Verse 23. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What's that about? There are some people who will say, now, what Jesus means, he's not talking about a camel going through a literal eye of the needle, right? Piper got a sewing kit, my daughter, uh, for Christmas, and step one is learning how to thread the needle, you know? And you got to, you know, dab it with your tongue and get it all straight and lined up and get it through that tiny little hole. You got this tiny little thread, and then you have this, you know, 2,000-pound camel. And so some, some people will say, well, you know, in... Jerusalem, there was this really narrow, small gate that in order to get the camel through it, it was called the eye of a needle, and you had to take all of its luggage off, and it had to like hold its breath and squeeze real skinny in order to be shoved through uh, by a really strong guy to get it to the other side. Uh, they are lying liars who lie. Don't believe them. There's no such gate, right? This is what Jesus has in mind. He's talking about a camel and a needle. If you were talking a day, He'd be talking about like a, an elephant and an atomic particle. He's just picking up one of the biggest things that these guys knew of and one of the smallest openings that they could conceive. And he wants them to feel the natural impossibility of getting saved. In the condition in which we enter this world in our self-trust. Salvation is not naturally possible. You know how you get a camel through the eye of a needle? One strand after another. It has to be broken down. It has to die. It has to be threaded through bit by bit and then remade on the other side. And coming to Christ always requires that. And death to who we are and being remade in Him. We can't fix ourselves. love the way that this is illustrated in the Chronicles of Narnia book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, with the character of Eustace Scrub. The way that Lewis puts it, he says, There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it uh, because he is this arrogant, uh, self-centered guy. He's always looking down on 
others. He thinks he's better. He thinks he's smarter than everybody else, right? He's an annoyance, uh, nuisance to his cousins. And uh, he enters into to Narnia and he finds this, this dragon's lair, right? It's filled up with treasure. And he just starts to, you know, do his, 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 his best, you know, ducktails impression of swimming through all the treasure and sticking on the, uh, the, the bracelets that he can find there and testing it out. And he falls asleep. And he wakes up the next morning and he has turned into a dragon, right? It's fantasy literature, so that's how this, this kind of stuff works. But the bracelet that he was wearing is now tight around his arm and it's tearing into his skin and he's bleeding and he's in pain like he's never known before. At first, he's a little bit glad to be bigger than everybody for the first time in his life. Now they'll listen to me. You know, now I'll be the one who gets to call his shots, the dragon that I am. But the pain is just unbearable. And then he sees this well of water, this large pond that's clear and, and it just looks so soothing and he knows that if I could just get in there and, and, and bathe then it'll be, I'll be able to ease the pain and the lion Aslan who represents Christ shows up and he speaks to him and he says you have to undress first and so he starts to scratch at his scales and, and he pulls off a layer of skin and underneath it is just another layer of dragon skin. He's working at it. He's trying as hard as he can to just get rid of the dragon persona that he's taken on. But he's dragon all the way deep. And Aslan says, you can't undress yourself. I have to do it for you. Lewis writes this from Eustace's perspective. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt the only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled stitch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It hurt like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I had turned into a boy again. He had become small and been made whole because only someone else could fix him and fix the greed that was in his heart and fix his, fix his attempts to control life based on what he could do and what he could handle. What happened to the end of this story? What happened to the man who had everything but lacked one thing? Well, there's 
bit of church tradition, and it's interesting the details that show up in the Gospel of Mark. I mentioned it earlier, right? Uh, this story shows up in Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, but in those other accounts, there's one bit of information that doesn't appear. And it's this, that when Jesus looked at him, he loved him. There's a detail there that's personal. And that has caused several people to conclude that the rich young man who came to Jesus was John Mark himself who wrote this gospel. There's another moment when he shows up later on. Again, the kind of information that only somebody who was an eyewitness would put in. And he shows up as an undressed man. Mark 14, verse 51. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And imagine if you're Mark writing the story of Jesus and including information like that. For the rest of the world to know about you. But somehow, in the moment of Jesus' arrest and shame and crucifixion, he finds himself in a situation where he literally now has nothing. In like used to scrub, has been undressed, but is going to be made whole again. Only Jesus can do this. And so he calls us to let our attempts at self-management, self-improvement to die. I finally let your self-indulgence die. Flip back to uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Find this striking statement. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And who are one of these little ones? Well, throughout all of these accounts, Jesus has been emphasizing again and again that to be one of his disciples, you have to become a child. And so he said, in the last passage we saw little children, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. So he's talking about his followers. He's talking about those who have trusted in him. And he's saying, if, if you live a life that flaunts choices that do not honor God, and you cause other people, you cause these little ones, you cause the followers of Jesus who are heading down the road of a crucified Savior to fall into unbelief, to get trapped into sin. It would be better for you if they had taken a millstone and wrapped it around your neck and tossed you into the sea. It would be better for you to physically die than for you to lead somebody else into spiritual destruction. Jesus brings some hard words for his people. And these are sobering words here. The, the millstone description is not an accident. It was the 
form of punishment that Rome would use for, for those who threatened the, the throne. And, you know, this is in a place of kingdom rivalry, and that's the background setting for all these exchanges as the kingship of Jesus has entered town. But, but somebody who would assert themselves, who would take control, who would presume to take charge of other people and their destinies, that's the kind of fate that they would face. And, he, and he's asking this question. Is that the way that you live? You act like you're king. And people just exist to serve what you want. And it doesn't matter how they are affected by the choices you make. Because you're just after whatever brings you comfort and ease and pleasure. My question for you, this is something for you to be thinking about now at this point in your life. Are you aware of the effect that you have on the other people in this room? Do you know the influence that you have on other believers? I mean, particularly if you're older in here, on those who are younger, and those who are observing your life. Does, does that get taken into consideration at all? In what you promote? In the decisions that you make? In the jokes that you'll make and laugh at? In what you'll allow included in the things that you do? Do you think about the struggle that that's going to bring to somebody else? Do you think about the, the questions that that will raise for them as to whether or not any of this is important or worth giving any kind of consideration to? Because if you treat it lightly, if you treat the things of God like they can be made fun of, if you treat the things of God or if you treat the reality of sin like it can be played with, Right, that affects the people around us. And today, the word authentic has come to mean something very different than it, it used to mean. Mark Sayer says, Today, honesty and authenticity no longer mean truthfulness, but rather a transparency concerning one's deepest wants and desires and an openness about one's determination to indulge them. Hey, this is just me. This is what I care about. This is what I want. And I'm just being honest, just being authentic with where I really am. Believers guard and protect what other people see and the example that we bring into their lives. Do you... Do you have a posture that other people exist to serve the indulgences of your desires. And so, if you're in a relationship, their boyfriend, girlfriend situation, do you protect this? Are you okay with leading someone into impurity, leading someone into compromise? Leading somebody in, into having a, a, a guilty conscience before God because they're, they're not sure with 
you know, how y'all are postured toward one another, how physical you are with one another, whether or not God is honored and, and, and a distance has been created and they're not sure, can I, can I wholeheartedly give myself to God in worship with the way that I'm living and the kind of relationship that we're managing right now? Are you okay with creating those concerns and those questions for somebody else who is one of these little ones? that Jesus loves and that Jesus has died for? Or is it better for a millstone to be attached to you and you to find some other end? Jesus says, better to die than to lead somebody into sin. And then better to die than to lead yourself into sin. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. This is what I'm saying, that the things we're saying this weekend, nobody in your life is telling you these things. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He's saying better to enter heaven maimed than to go to hell whole. He's obviously not talking about physically damaging yourself. This is, this is not some injunction toward some kind of self-harm that he's describing here, but he's saying with the same urgency. There's a film that came out years ago called 127 Hours. I've never seen the movie, but it told the true story of a man named Aaron Ralston. And on May 1st, that was a Aslan and Eustace the Dragon, by the way. May 1st, 2003, Ellen Ralston, a 27-year-old backpacker, did something unthinkable in order to save his life. After being pinned for five days by an 800-pound boulder in a remote Utah canyon, he took his dull pocket knife and cut off his right arm to free himself. He had tried chipping away at the rock at first, but it would not budge. Finally, he realized that he had only two choices. Either he must cut off his arm or he would die. On the fifth day, hungry and dehydrated, he sawed through his flesh just below the elbow in order to free himself. To the horror of middle school girls everywhere and to the... To the gratitude of preachers who finally found an illustration for what Jesus is saying here. But, I mean, how clear is that? I mean, this is the life and death reality here. And Jesus is saying here, if if you would do that for your physical life, what about your eternal life? What about the life that begins after your final breath on this earth is done and the next 10 billion years and beyond begin. Does that matter? 
Are there things that you are willing to let go and let die so that you can survive spiritually? John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Either with Jesus we crucify our flesh or our flesh will want to crucify Jesus. There's, There's stuff inside of us that's still against God. The sin that put our Savior on the cross. And the problem is, it still feels normal. Right? If you, if you go through your life gauging your choices in that way, because sin is going to continue to feel normal on some level, and righteousness will often feel painful. It'll feel like you're losing something. There will be grief and sadness. To part with certain patterns of life and behavior and attitudes and things that have felt good. And you live in a culture that tells you if it feels good, it's right. And so people are talking about, you know, I've outgrown my marriage. It no longer feels good. I'm moving on. And right here in in the context of chapter 10, he says, you know, better to cut yourself in half than to cut apart what God has joined together in marriage. You realize In your future, living faithfully is going to require putting things to death in your life. Or you will wander off living life on your own terms and into destruction. As we've entered the 20s, a lot of people have been talking in terms of the the roaring 20s, seeing kind of a, a return of that theme. And the, the, the 20s were, were a period in America's history of just economic boom and opportunity and financial ability and upward movement through the social status and just the celebrity acclaim lifestyle. The, uh, the novel, The Great Gatsby, uh, kind of captures that that moment of this American dream that, that had come and all the possibility that set up before it and, and this kind of sense of living for the party according to the, the, the 20s lifestyle. I, I saw the uh, Sparknotes Twitter account posted this on New Year's Eve. It said, if, if you want to throw a Gatsby-themed New Year's party, you'll need champagne, jazz music, the American dream corrupted, and a culture of decadence and mass consumerism that will ultimately give way to economic disaster. Because the 20s eventually came crashing down. And the whole facade was blown through. And the Great Depression followed. And all the money in the world and all the opulence that you could get and all the uh, respect of the important people that you could find could not protect you from that, could not protect you from the loss and the heartbreak that would follow. And the great Gatsby tells this story of this self-made man who's become rich beyond his dreams. He bought the house he always wanted. He found a way to start a business and work an angle and, and, and do what he could to... to grow his company and across certain lines he had this bootlegging industry that he developed all because there was a certain girl he had been chasing after 
and he wants to impress her. And so he throws weekend after weekend these rich parties where all the the movie stars attend and, and everybody who's anybody shows up and has a good time and it goes hours into the night And that storyline all comes crashing down in a car wreck on the road and ends in death. And F. Scott Fitzgerald's trying to show us this is where all this ends. Everything that looks promising and rewarding and exciting and pleasurable now, you can invest all you can in that. You can build the, the best life of your dreams and invest yourself into everything that you can get your hands on and do it all and it'll end in death on the road. Or you can embrace death and you can have life. Right? There, there, there are things in 2019 in my life that I, that I hope are dead. That I, that, that I hope there's a tombstone over them and that they don't show up again in 2020. Patterns of certain attitudes and ways of seeing my life and my circumstances and responding to people that I, I want them to be put to death. But I know that doesn't come easily. It always comes painfully. What is Jesus calling you to lay down. The of you is still trying to survive. That you need to hold the funeral tonight. You need to let it go. And you need to let it die. Right? This is, this is serious language that he brings. He says, get out your rusty pocket knife and there's a hand to cut off. And there are things that feel so close and so important to you. Like, I, I don't know if I can live without them. Yeah, but they're killing you. They're sucking away your soul. They're full of distraction. They're full of compromise. They're leading other people into sin. It's your own indulgence here and now. And it will not provide you what you think it can. Ben, if you'd come up, man. Just want us to take a moment to allow the Lord to interact with us personally. Let's, uh, let's quiet our hearts before the Lord. These are difficult moments. These are not easy passages to read. They're not easy passages to preach. They're not easy to receive. my only hope 
is in the power of God to allow us to see the worth and beauty of Jesus that loosens our grip on whatever it is he's calling us to let go. Let go of your self-importance. Let go of your self-improvement. Let go of your self-indulgence. How are you in the crosshairs of these hard words and these life-giving truths that Jesus brings? been living this settled posture of pride feeling like better you know better than your parents you know better than everybody else can't be inconvenienced by somebody else trying to get you to follow their plan looking down on others. Have you had a relationship with God that's just based on rules? And if you can keep up, you feel like you've been on good behavior, then you'll give Him time and feel like He's there for you. But when you can't keep up that race, you wander. Or if he hasn't given you what you really are after, you feel it's not worth it to even try. There's not real affection and desire to live because Jesus has done everything. You have everything in him. And so you just want to please Him. And that's why you change. What's something that has been leading you into sin? It's been leading you into long-standing patterns of lust. It's been leading you into long patterns of comparison or greed or anger because you've not, you don't have the things that other people have. So maybe that's, maybe that's a social media feed that you browse and come away from and in your heart you feel God hasn't been good to me because I don't have these things I don't do these things I don't have those friends I don't look like that and maybe gouging out your eye just means disabling that out you know it's not good for you it's sucking away your soul something that's been wasting away your time. But we need 
sensitivity because some of these things they're not bad things it's not wrong to want to play video games want to get good at certain things other hobbies and interests they're not wrong things but we can build our identity in them they can serve a life of laziness and ease they can compete with what God really wants us to be about and sometimes they just have to go that's that's the only option that's present it's not been good for you it needs to stop so I can't write out a script for you in this moment I just trust the Holy Spirit is present and leads us and brings about conviction and helps us to see what's standing in the way of having more of Him. We need to become small and pass through an eye of a needle and get remade. Stand together. I'm just going to begin to sing. And if the Lord is leading you to respond in a way that it's going to require a significant step, and sometimes that's a miniature death in and of itself, just to acknowledge I've, I've got an area of struggle that I need to deal with God about. And so I need to swallow my pride. I need to die to myself. I need to become small and come forward and kneel. I need the help of, of others. I need prayer. Right, that, that's a death. But there's a resurrection on the other side of that death. That's the promise. No death that you take, that you pursue for Jesus will not be met with resurrection power restoration reward it's what he's promised so if God's dealing with you in some category something that needs to die something that you've been trying to keep alive and it's not been drawing you closer to Jesus and further down this road but leading you astray Lord's put his finger on something. I just want you to come forward and visit with him. Kneel before him. Lower yourself. And allow us to pray. So if God's leading you to respond in that way, do that as we sing.